and welcome to Explain Me. My name's Patty Johnson. And I'm William Pauheide. Today we talked to Kenny Schachter about the art market. Kenny Schachter is the art consultant and a columnist for Artnet, and so he's going to tell us about the ins and outs of the art market, mysteries of uh, price fixing, and all sorts of fun stuff like that. Yeah, and we want to figure out an answer to the question, how, how Trumpian is the art world? Yeah, so consider that the theme for today. Let's give Kenny a call. Hi. Welcome to the podcast, Kenny. Thank you very much. Um, So, I think just to get started, um, we both wanted to hear your origin story a little bit. Can you give us a little bit of background on what you've done over the course of your career? Well, I mean, in a nutshell, I came, I never was, I I came from outside the art world. I studied law. I never had the intention of practicing really, but I would just, I studied philosophy before that. And I was absolutely not cognizant of the commercial side of the art world until I was procrastinating from an exam and stumbled into Warhol's estate sale at Sotheby's. And in addition to his vast collection, which I had no idea that he had in the first instance, they were getting ready for a sale coming up for the spring. And into my mid-20s, I had never been to a commercial gallery. So I would say virtually my entire career since then, looking back on it, has been a kind of uh, analysis and a critique of the dissemination of art through the marketplace. So anyway, I just started like an idiot savant. I started, I mean, firstly, because at the time, I'll go right into it. Tell me when I'm taking too much time. Um, I was, I, because I came so late to the game, I started to go to Germany and teach myself art in all over, in Cologne and Dusseldorf and Frankfurt and Stuttgart. And at the time, there was no England on the scene and I'll never forget, like in 1991, on the cover of the New York Times was an article about Cologne versus New York as being the center of the art world. So I started traveling and going abroad and buying art and then selling it back in the States and teaching myself art from a more kind of global or international perspective because there were so many people decades into the art business and I was very late into the game. But in a sense, one of your, you mentioned before, like how I make a living, and I have a very unique kind of situation. My teaching, I teach at the University of Zurich for five years in in art and economics graduate program, and the writing that I do doesn't really pay money at all. So I'm a dealer to dealer dealer, in a sense. So I'm basically just buying art and selling it to other professionals in the field rather than taking time personal collecting. So uh, how much of a, I guess, how much of a profit do you make on that? Is there a certain cut you get? Um, a profit uh, on what? When, I don't yeah, understand. when you're selling when to I'm another selling dealer. To another dealer. Uh, a percentage or? I mean, basically, more or less, more or less the profit I give them, I, I basically buy and sell art for myself and a small group of people. And then selling to gal, I give ten percent to the to, to whatever the gallery is that sells something. Typically, that's kind of it's things are never identical, but that's a, gener- a general way How that I function. How long do you typically hold artworks for when you buy them? You know, I mean, again, there's no hard there's no hard and fast rules. I've been I consider myself in a sense to be a professional collector because I mean I'm self taught in everything that I do and I come through it with a great amount of passion and dedication. So. Uh, it could be anywhere from immediately to years. There's no, it's really never the same. 
Yeah, I think what we really want to know is how Trumpian is the art world, Kenny? <laughs> I mean, you know, you some of these, you how, how Trumpian is any, at the top end of any business, I mean, if you came into the market, let's say for financial derivatives, if you just rocked up at Goldman Sachs and tried to do some kind of a complex financial deal and you didn't know what you were doing, you would be devoured by animals. And in a sense, you know, the art world is, it's a big $60 billion market. Sotheby's is a publicly traded company. So to think that Sotheby's is a cesspool of corrupt and dishonest or illegal behavior is just, it can't be so because it's not possible in today's day and age with such degrees of compliance and scrutiny that of course there are people that are disproportionately proactive in any given market and they're going to get different or more favorable terms than other people would get simply by nature of the extent of the business that they're doing. So, I mean, I'm often criticizing the market and I'm very transparent in terms of the things that I hear about and see and experience personally. At the same time, I mean, I've spent 30 years in the art business. Two of my kids are at the School of Visual Arts and we're doing a show in Shanghai together. And I love the art market and I believe profoundly in the market, but there's, in any field, there's always gonna be a Bill's curve of integrity and morals upon which people approach trading in, in a business, period. So is the art world Trumpian? Is, I mean, you mentioned before the fact that I gave, I told a reporter from Bloomberg that I had sold everything in my booth. I wasn't trying to profit from that information. I was just trying to save face, really, and not embarrass myself for having failed so miserably. But there was there was no way for me to financially benefit from such a, 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 a mistruth. So, I mean, when I gave a talk before in Chicago about the kind of fake news, fake information situation in the art market, and I said that that the art market shies away from, it's because there are many cases where you know, like you hear about a painting selling for $300 million, a Gauguin painting, or 350, and then when the thing devolves into a lawsuit between, uh, there was a lawsuit, I think it's pending now, between Simone de Puri trying to recover a fee for the transaction, it turns out to have been a $200 million deal. So I think there's a lot of hyperbolizing that goes on, simply people trying to like posture themselves to look better, or for the business to be, you know, for people to come across as being more successful in some respect. So again, like, you know, they could, I'm sure there's bidding going on in the auction house, which may not be 100% kosher on some level or another. There's certainly things that go on that aren't perfect. Like, for instance, there's a situation where someone guarantees a piece of art, and if they're involved in the purchase of the piece at auction, they get a discount, a kind of finance fee, a reimbursement. But typically that reimbursement doesn't get reported as the, in, the, in the final price of the purchase of the work. So you may see a, a price reported in Artnet for the sale of a given painting, and in fact that painting had sold for uh, for somewhat less than what was public, publicly recorded. So, like I said, there are certain gray areas where there's it's not black and white as to what's happening, but you'll find that anywhere. Well, in the case that you were talking about with the with the guarantor, like how would a, a person who's trying to track this know? Is it just about knowing? as much as humanly possible to track the auctions? Like what? I mean, I just think, I mean, look, if you're buying something at auction, you know, you have to think somehow, you know, more than every single person in the whole interconnected global art market, you know, so, I mean, it takes a tremendous kind of leap of faith or due diligence. And like there's this Leonardo da Vinci painting that's been guaranteed for a hundred million dollars that was purchased by some person for 150 million or 130 million 
whatever it was. And I mean, he didn't do his due diligence, so he's furious and lawsuits are flying all across the world. But really, these people have to blame only themselves, that you have to go into these situations with eyes wide open and expect the worst from people. But I mean, that particular case seemed crazy to me because we, first of all, as you reported it, it was two billion. He, he bought two billion, a billion yeah, dollars billions. worth of art for two billion. Yeah. So he lost a billion dollars on that. But purchase. he didn't, he, he didn't, he, he lost money on his, on the fact that he didn't do his homework, period, and just had a blind trust in someone who wasn't even an art dealer per se. He owned the Freeport business. And so the whole thing is that's just kind of well, greed versus. I mean, greed versus uh, ignorance. In well, my, this, this whole thing like feeds into the Leonardo of Salvador. Uh, Sal right, which three years ago wasn't even known to be a Leonardo or right. five years ago or 10 years ago, whenever. Right. And now Christie's is shopping this thing around to all these different locations like yeah, uh, Hong Kong, different uh, London. Marketing. Like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, no, but I think uh, the person who runs uh, writes Gray, uh, Gray Matter um, mm -hmm. in Artnet talked about the, how dangerous it is to ship things that are that, well, to ship anything. But mm -hmm. when shipping things that are that valuable, usually they don't go to as many different locations as this one is. Is this just because, like, Christie's is very happy to gamble so much money? or like, What choice have they to have a painting like that in a contemporary art sale? They have no choice but to flog it around the world because they're trying to expose it to as many conceivable people as they can. It adds to the allure, it adds to the press, and it's just a marketing gambit, nothing more. Well, yeah, it's but I mean, I think you said in another <laughs> this is, I mean, this kind of feeds into something else you said, that when somebody tells you that uh, you have to see the work in person, usually that work is a dog. Is right. this sort of the underlying um, thesis with, for... I just think this painting has a goofy background. This painting, I mean, basically there's a cloud over this painting. There's the fact that it's involved in this lawsuit. There's the fact that it was bought, that it was only recently discovered and had been missing for, I don't know how many hundreds of years, whatever the situation is. It's a different situation, but clearly that there's some kind, they're trying to clean the painting up and to remove this cloud that lingers over the painting. That's plain and simple. But anyway, before you mentioned about this mid-level gallery situation, the fact that mid-level, mid-tier galleries seem to be struggling today to a further extent that they had before in the recent past, yeah, and, it, it, and that it's... Well, I hmm? think it might be important for our audience just to kind of like break down the difference between the secondary market and the world of auction sales um, that, that you've been discussing, and also secondary, like dealers that can sell artwork to other dealers or other clients. Um, I guess when we're talking about the mid-tier or the mid-list gallery, a lot of these galleries don't get involved with any secondary market sales or they don't have that as a revenue stream. But right. you know, I think that's one of the key differences. I mean, you've, you've sort of said that the last five to seven years have been really good for you selling in the secondary market. And I wonder, uh, you know, if that has any connection to the, the, the struggles that the kind of mid-tier are um, facing. All of the art that I'm talking about selling is 90% art that I bought on the secondary market to begin with. So mm -hmm. I would be a moron to think that I can just go and run into galleries and buy young or mid-career artists and then turn around and sell them a week later from a primary gallery. I would be ostracized and a pariah and I wouldn't be able to, I would be like someone like a Simkowitz that who's not allowed. No galleries turn me down to buy art except for maybe Matthew Marks, but I think that's another altogether different issue uh, with him. So the, 
there, there are various situations. There are certain instances in the primary market with artists like Mark Bradford and Jonas Wood, and there are certain artists that are in super high demand where they're the prime, the secondary mark, the secondary price for a piece of art already freshly being made exceeds the initial primary price that the work would be sold for in the initial gallery outing. So. In Wait, instances... can you can can you offer a concrete example of that? Because They've already got that's... an auction market. What 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 Mark, they say? A Mark, oh, Brad, okay. a Mark Bradford, a Mark Bradford could sell for two point five million dollars out of Hauser today, and it's immediately worth in the secondary market three to three and a half. I mean, there are instances where galleries like Hauser or various galleries will make you buy two pieces, donate one to a museum just to even just to even be able to buy the work of an in demand. Artist. Yes. Okay, and, and that's so, insane, and yeah. it's also news to me. I actually, well, no, I, like I, Kusa, I, Kusa, Kusa, okay, so Kusama is an artist who's, I mean, she's 89, I think. At this point in her career, for decades it wasn't like this, but there's an intense and wild amount of speculation going on in her work. Eli Broad is having a show, the museums are buying loads of her work, and she's just opened a museum for herself in Tokyo. So you can buy a piece at David's Werner for $500,000 that is immediately worth on the secondary between six dollars and $900,000. So, so if do a you, collector, I, yeah, go ahead. Do you know anything about that work? I mean, this feels like a side tangent to me, but she is 89 and she is like more prolific now than she ever has been. She has a her. very large studio. Like, well, yeah, but I mean, is, is <laughs> so this it's, like it's David's Werner's studio? Just like, it's not just greedy, <laughs> it's not just art dealers or speculators that are the only, I mean, some art, artists are complicit in this process as much as anybody. So it's not just like the artist is toiling away in the garret and then some kind of terrible, satanistic, greedy person comes and sucks into it. But it's a, I mean, it's a system that's being fed on from both sides. So there's oh, a lot yeah. of, or a lot of these infinity net paintings come on the market still. They're being cranked out of the studio, and you know mm -hmm. she's been making these p series of paintings since the '60s. I mean, I guess my question is, is just I have some questions about how productive I could be at 89. Mm -hmm. It just seems a little fishy to me that she's <laughs> able to seamlessly run her studio so well and produce these like massive works. And she, some of well, them she's are an artist I could easily imagine dying tomorrow and that the work just keeps coming out of the studio <laughs> yeah, exactly. as like a Kusama I... estate edition in perpetuity. <laughs> well, I this, just call it infinity me, production. Excuse me, but I don't want to name any names, but it seems that Brancusi is busier today than he's ever been his entire death and life combined. Yeah. And that, I'm I... sorry, but there's some, if you want to talk about all the different areas that are Right for discussion about the utter underlying validity in the first instance is having Brancusi's continue to fly out to have to, to be make to posthumous Brancusi's dated 2016 or 17. Yes, I mean that does beg the question how much how much forgery is going on in the art. But this is not forgery. This oh, is not for just, no. This is sanctioned. It's yes. worse than forgery because oh. it's sanctioned by the estate. Yes, and I I always joke that. When I see a Kusama, a recent Kusama, I joke that, what, is that a 2018 or a 2019? <laughs> <laughs> that she's forward making them. Yes, back. No, wow. So, I mean, you know, look, and for, I'm, at the same time, you can't blame her for someone who probably struggled for so, the majority of her professional life was spent being subjugated for being a woman and being a bit mad or whatever. But, you know, and there's such a disparity still between, 
male, female, black, white artists and the economic reality of what numbers that they can yeah. I mean, things are, things are better today than they've ever been in history. But you have people like George Bosilitz continue to give interviews saying that women can't paint and that's why their prices are lower. Well, there's, we, we, we're going to have to talk about Knight Lanzaman later uh, in the podcast. We're happy to bring yeah. it up. But there's, there's so many problems with the art world. But I mean, one of the things I would just say as an artist that, you know, the, the, the kind of problems that you're describing um, uh, for Kusama or that there's so much demand, she's producing so much art. On the flip side of that, for a lot of artists at the mid-tier or the mid-list like myself, um, we have no established auction records. Um, if our work comes up at auction, it can be like a career-threatening thing. It can mm -hmm. feel like the end of the world. And it's true that things are maybe better than they've ever been. It's like the idea that there's more money in the world that there's ever been. But we could talk about Kusama all day and a very few uh, artists that have huge Absolutely. market footprints. And then the flip side of this is, yeah, at the mid-level, um, it seems to be there seems to be a lot of people struggling well and just just to add to that a little bit like it seems like one of the problems you often see at art fairs and i think you've noticed you kenny you've talked about this is that you know there's too much art being made globally i think that might be true but oh yeah no absolutely but like <laughs> the quality of what you can get like the top tier artists can only make so much work and only so much of it is going to be good Meanwhile, I think, anyway, I've seen like a lot of artists who make really good work and they show at mid-tier galleries and they, these galleries go under or they do well for a while and then they, they don't do well. And like there doesn't seem to be a system that effectively raises talent up to the, the level where an artist could actually get by on their artwork. So there's a few people who win in that system, but like, it, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I, the art world is a very, it's a very difficult system and there's no denying that it's a struggle for most people. I mean, the fact with mid tier galleries, it's a very, it's almost an untenable business model. And I gave a talk for the, for, I had a talk with Hans Gobrist and I was mentioned talking about this phenomenon and thought that like, I mean, galleries, mid to small galleries should be able to apply for some kind of federal subsidy in a sense, because the economic model doesn't entirely make sense altogether because the more successful they are with sales. And I mean, there's, there's failure built into success because the expenses go up so exponentially for traveling to do fairs and rent and hiring staff to handle more successful careers of artists. And then the artists turn around and leave galleries and you're left with nothing. Yeah. And I was, I was researching this phenomenon for a lecture I just gave in Zurich. And there was an amazing article that Roberta Smith had written about all the galleries that are closing and all the struggles of the mid-career galleries, except it was written in 1991, <laughs> where then far more galleries went out of business in the early 90s yeah, well, in Soho and the area. So this is, it's always been difficult and it's always going to be difficult. And the model, I think the fundamental basic model of art galleries is in the midst of a change which is happening right underneath our nose but for a small gallery or a mid gallery to represent 12 or 15 artists and try to do shows every year or two and going to seven fairs you're just going to kill yourself and you're not going to make any money basically it's yeah. a very very diff only such a small percentage of people operating at those levels can take it to another tier and succeed right there's a lot without there. having money there's a lot there around. i mean to to one degree it seems like um there's not as much mobility um 
within the kind of system that you were describing like i just don't know if we're going to get another generation of like metro pictures or luring augustine's galleries that might you know have grown with their artists and able to move up the price point ladder it seems really challenging for a gallery once they're established to even change their prices unless they have a star and you know what we're seeing is a lot of concentration so if a gallery does produce like a joe bradley you know the likelihood that they stay at that gallery is probably not going to uh, right. They're not going to grow together. Um, yeah. Well, and then the, the other the other side to that is also, you know, we we know that the art world's cyclical. I mean, after the stock market crash in '89 or whenever that was, you know, there the, a lot of galleries closed, artists lost stipends. Um, the art world was very political in the '90s, which was another way mm -hmm. of saying there wasn't much of a market um, <laughs> in the primary market. And then it kind of came roaring back in the 2000s with the addition of the art fair, um, which you've sort of yeah. talked about. Um, and, and that, but then, you know, I'm sort of wondering, are we in the middle of just another down cycle? Or is this, as my friend Michelle Vaughn, uh, who's sort of really concerned about the mid-tier gallery, um, just said, you know, she was asking, are we in the middle of like a sea change? Is this a structural change where the mid-tier gallery no longer makes sense? I mean, it, it always seems like there's going to be a churn of emerging galleries, like a permanent mm -hmm. underclass of people that really want to try their hand at it. But yeah. that, that kind of stable level of representing 12 to 15 artists and making 30 to $40,000 a year as an artist or something, uh, or, you know, I mean, it just doesn't seem like that model is um, going to survive right now. Yeah, I mean, I, just, I think there's definitely changes underfoot. And like when I started, you used to have to send a little slide around to convey your work to someone in an envelope. And so the, the democratization of information through things like Instagram and Facebook has been so profound. And I mean, I must have seen a million websites crop up with offering a new paradigm shift as an art platform. But to be honest, I can't think of one single website that exists as art with its primary basis or foundation succeeding on any level from artsy, all the sucking in money from investments and being propped up, but what's the business model there? But I think in terms of galleries, I mean, there are still people like Sadie Coles and Gavin Brown and um, Carol Green is a great example of a gallery that's been growing with our artists over time and selling to incredible museums and institutions at higher and higher prices. It's very difficult and I think there's a sea change underfoot, but the change is not as a result of the economic hardship that mid-career, mid-level and small galleries are under in this year, 2017. I think it's always been wildly difficult. Well, it's always been a struggle. I and did I think have that the changes to that. have yeah. I mean, I remember uh, when Lisa uh, Schroeder and Sarah Jo Romero came back from one of their first experiences in Miami um, at the art fairs, they were selling art with flashlights when the power went out at the fair. I mean, there was a period in the early aughts where people who had no market activity prior to the fair suddenly found themselves making hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, it, it led to a kind of exodus of galleries out of Williamsburg into Chelsea, the Lower East Side. There was a rapid growth. I mean, it all kind of came crashing down in 2008 but i would say it was easier you know there was money flowing mm -hmm. into that kind of mid-level uh and that mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to be the case anymore well, well i guess i mean yeah that i'm sorry well, a big shift that i see is as the market expands ever more internationally with asia in particular it seems that the more and more money that comes into the market it, it's chasing after fewer and fewer things yes. or more you know it's obvious art by obvious people that's what drives the market but the fact is that the people that sell it at the small and mid-level, the people that make it in the early stages, I mean, 
it has to come from within and you have the motivations have to be coming from the right place, but it really can't be squelched in a sense. So when I started in the late 80s and I curated straight through the recession of the from 90 to like, let's say 97, and my first year in business in the late 80s, I did made six figures and for the next five years, I barely scratched 15,000 a year, but it didn't stop us from doing projects, from curating shows, nor artists from making art. And I mean, it was kind of a stupid thing for me to say that there's too much art being made because it's, it's a terrible thing to say. It was a bit flippant. I, but at the same time, I just think with so many, I was speaking more of the fact that like with so many fairs and fairs have really had a radical fundamental shift in the last 10 years. So sometimes the galleries will show inferior material because they just can't get their hands on anything else. And I, no, I don't think it's flipped to say that there's too much art production. I mean, this is a problem that's not, um, it's not a judgment. I mean, there's so many art programs and the growth of MFA programs that there are, you know, so many artists graduating and looking to kind of come into this market. And it, it really feels sort of, uh, I feel terrible for a lot of young artists graduating because they're coming in at a time when there's so much, so much activity at the high end and, and less and less activity mm -hmm. and I, in a place where they're going to start out, you know? Yeah. I also think there's a danger in assuming that there is a de facto good to just making art, like, which is not to say... It can lead to cultural warming. <laughs> it can lead to global warming. Yeah. Too much material taking People up flying, too much space. Yeah, flying and shipping. Uh. Yeah. It's not so funny. No, all no. the crates, all the boxes, all the yeah. trees. It's a lot of... The art world has a big footprint. What I think also is a change. I noticed also how art is like completely changed to like a branding lifestyle type of okay. thing. So, I mean, I think a lot of business world is flourishing. Business school applications go nuts. When the business is in a downturn cycle, then law school applications increase. When the art market's doing so great, I think, I mean, a lot of people come to art today in a, in a, in a, in a wildly different way from when I was dealing with it back in the 80s, even though there was an, a crazy expansion in the late 80s. But it's become this kind of uh, entrepreneurial cottage industry where, I mean, you see a lot of art with like from Jeff Koons bags and Damien Hurst, and it becomes like art between luxury design object and traditional art object itself. So I think a lot of the motivations for some of these kids could be, you know, looking at art as a starry-eyed way to crack the entrepreneurial cultural industry. <laughs> That's shut everybody up. <laughs> well, I mean, just going back to the idea of like things changing, I was just I, I was thinking about what you had said, William, about Schroeder and Romero and the Marian Bosky and like will there be any of those types of galleries and I was thinking about like galleries that had been formed I guess post 2000 who are now sort of at a similar level and I can't who are you thinking of no one I can't <laughs> like there aren't that many I mean uh, when was Gavin Brown formed Gavin oh. Brown started back in the late 90s, late yeah, 90s. Yeah, Gavin, so he was or mid, mid 90s mid okay 90s. so he's too early Canada yeah. maybe like they're they're pretty Canada. Big. What about Karma? Brendan Duggan from Karma Gallery, Clearing Gallery. I feel like Clearing. Uh, there's I... Essex Street. Hmm. Um... There are various. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely 100% certain that there's a crop of galleries that have started over the past even five years that will do really well. There's always going to be a number of people that 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 an anomaly in the generality of people having troubles. People will always come through and do great things still, and there will be great dealers and. Great artists will emerge that from nothing, and I'm I'm kind of cynically optimistic 
that things will always be okay on a certain level. And I'm thrilled that my kids are going in as trying to be professionally involved as artists with all the, there's only so much, I mean, I believe in trying to help them as much as I can, of course, as the dad, but they're on their own basically in terms of talent and their output and their intent. And I'm thankful that they're involved. It gives me great pleasure to be able to work with them on some level and to see their growth over time. But in the meantime, you know, I was talking to a dealer yesterday on the Lower East Side, and he had said that there was a, sort of an emergency meeting that had happened a couple weeks ago where he, uh, they had invited a bunch of galleries in the, in the neighborhood to show up and see whether there was anything that could be done about the uh, drought and sales that ha- has mm-hmm. recently been plaguing the middle tier. And he thought yeah. a few people would show up, and it was a mass so there was that's like, amazing. There was a, well, I mean, amazing, but also it's a lot of trouble. And what do you mean? Well, it, there's a lot of people in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I mean, right. So, I mean, that... so these, but but the fact that these people would get together on a community type of level, it reminds me of the old days when I started. Where I mean, that's a good thing in a sense that people should band together and they have to take things into their own hands and try to help each other well, and figure out ways to get more people to look. This and is and more people. And and one of the ways yeah. I think that they are talking about banding together and helping people is that a model that I have heard about, but I don't know so many concrete cases where they look to... Condo is one. Well, that's a different one. What I'm talking about is like looking to larger galleries to help support them, whether that means like buying from their stable and reselling. Um, And I had... Maybe you can confirm whether this is a rumor or whether it's an actual thing, but this dealer told me that he'd heard that David Zorner's largest client was Hauser and Worth. <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> totally untrue. Okay, <laughs> I'm well, not this quite is good. Sure. I'm not <laughs> quite sure they're on the friendliest terms since they were in partnership together, to be exact. I think it's more, yeah, was it more competitive and Worth? than... You know, I know I've heard of big galleries that collect a lot, a lot of art from younger galleries, I think. And also like the, the, the initiative condo by uh, uh, Vanessa Carlos in London, she's had like bigger galleries like Sadie Cole supporting the work of younger dealers and younger artists in this condo initiative, which was letting bigger galleries basically give out their space uh, for a month to other galleries and a kind of forced collaboration and that's a nice initiative, and that creates greater exposure for the young art dealers. And I mean, I think Sadie actually picked up this one uh, woman video artist from the show that she did in yeah, Condo, that, from what I understand. Maybe that's not the best thing in the world for the gallery that she got poached from. Um, I yeah, can understand it. I mean, it's, like, it's not poached, of course. The gallery is from California, and Sadie is in London. Yeah, and I doubt yeah. the artist or the or anyone would, would even do something it, like that just, or entertain well, them. Once, once you know, an artist's price point goes up at like a Sadie Cole's level, it's almost impossible for the, the smaller gallery to match those price points and sell. Um, condo, you know, it comes out of necessity. I mean, it's like a lot of these younger uh, galleries can't afford to do the art fairs. And there is a kind of sense that if the middle goes, if this kind of like level of galleries that can um that, that you know need a model like condo because they can't afford to do the fairs if they go you know is that just like a, a chain of in the dominoes that just like the art fairs go after that and then like the storage industry i mean and the art I, I just think if that. you if you i just think if you check all the numbers i don't know if there even are these numbers not. <laughs> but i'm saying <laughs> if you check if you market. check if you check no i'm saying if you check the definitive notion of every gallery that opened that is proposing to sell 
emerging contemporary art. If, I guarantee you there hasn't been, there, there's no structural fall off. There's no precipice that this model is like dying so quickly because there are still new galleries springing up. All, I, am, oh, I, I, appreci I appreciate that it's as difficult as it's ever been. That's about as I far think, as I'll go. I think we have to I just push don't back think against it's that. Because I mean, from, yeah. um, you know, some, some anecdotal reporting I've heard from an artist like Sharon Loudon, who's been meeting and talking with a lot of dealers in New York, she's heard uh, that you know sales are down thirty percent across the board from what right. she's talking. Mm -hmm. We've we've heard that. But that's because the market's constricted. The market overall, the auction market's constricted thirty percent year on year volume of sales. So I think it happens at at every level, from the highest to the lowest. There's been a fall off in gross annualized business going on. And is that a, is that a function of the fact that like Julia Halpern and Artnet recently wrote that like 25 artists account for nearly 50% of all the contemporary auction sales? Is that a function that there's just more money concentrating in fewer hands and they're buying fewer well, artists? This, I think this, the sad part is there's more money in more hands than ever before, but everybody wants the same crap that their friends have. <laughs> and a lot of people buy art with their ears and for reasons other than, I mean, the traditional notion of a connoisseur who goes to galleries every weekend and reads everything that comes out. And I mean, these are antiquated notions. These people will belong in a vitrine in a natural history museum. There's so few people that just would bleed and cry for art every day. That's interesting, the, the notion of connoisseurship. I feel like hipsterism has taken that and really run with it because like, mm -hmm. anything that has a low price point where the barrier to entry is is low enough the mm -hmm. hipster has their their finger in it so you, mm -hmm. you go to a barber and like get a beard and get or get your beard trimmed and like <laughs> and a, a whiskey beard <laughs> and a whiskey or whatever and, like you know yeah. but it doesn't that culture doesn't seem to scale up all the way mm -hmm. like yeah. that cultural movement once mm -hmm. you get up to the upper tiers the what you're saying kenny is that the there's a loss of connoisseurship I think people don't have the same levels of attention span or the, but I just think that everything is so like insta everything and people's attention spans are so teeny and not as not many people do enough reading and looking as they do t listening and buying stuff before art is just a slow burning process. And I just think that art never changes. I mean, there's been, if you look at Durer and his fatuation with money and Rembrandt's love affair with making money and spending it, I mean, I think all of these things you think because we live in a different era in a different society and different technological uh, systems, but a lot of the impetus or the fundamental human nature revolving all of these issues of art and money and struggles and hardship and people doing well and a zero sum game where some people do well at the expense of someone else, these intrigues and these difficulties and these scenarios have been, have, it's just the same story on a certain level. Well, they, they are fascinating, but I do, I'd, I'd kind of go back to your earlier point that maybe something that's interesting about Kondo is that, that it kind of invites collectors to go back to the galleries to look at art in mm -hmm. a gallery setting. Um, do you think this has something to do with the fact that, you know, you, you kind of mentioned ha the glut of fairs that are happening and that people are maybe exhausted or tired of going to these kind of event-driven things and seeing art in little, you know, stalls? Is, yeah. is there, a, do the galleries need to kind of like refocus or reorient around their physical spaces? Because so much of what I hear are people saying, I'm going private. I'm going to do maybe a pop-up. I'm going to kind of get rid of my brick and mortar space and focus on sales of my artists directly to the to the collectors. Yeah. And I think what, what the big loss there and why your, you know, kind of point about maybe galleries should get a subsidy for providing public access to art via a retail model. I, I do mm -hmm. think that's a great idea, but I, I just wonder if, have people kind of 
lost touch with visiting galleries or are we? I mean, I have to say I can argue both sides so easily because I live in London and if I wanted to see 10 emerging galleries tomorrow, I couldn't. It would take me two days or three days to really see as much as you possibly can because it's so spread out and, you know, the neighborhoods here are so difficult to navigate and so forth, merely just getting around. So, of course, in New York, it's an entirely different story, but there's absolutely no, you know, nothing to equate Chelsea there's area no or Lower the Lower East Side. side or or there's just no place where you can go and see 25 galleries, not even 20 galleries. You just, it doesn't exist here. And in that sense, and with the increasingly short attention spans of people and with the fact that these art fairs have become like Miami isn't even an art fair anymore it's an international exercise in branding for I mean I bet half the people that rock into town don't even go to the fair it's so it becomes something so entirely oh, yeah, no, removed when, from, when, when from what like it was party you know it's just a giant yeah, it's like party. a joke yeah. But anyway, I mean, so I can understand, like, for someone like me who just needs as much information as possible in the shortest amount of time, professionally, fairs are an intrinsic part of the way that I do business. I don't buy at auction, and I don't generally sell at auction. I much more prefer to buy through galleries, through fairs, which are another manifestation of galleries or artists, and then work, I said before, with other deals. I love art dealers. I think art dealers are the great hapless. I mean, when this knucklehead that I mentioned from California, who's always criticizing galleries, I think galleries are the most beautiful people in the world, though there's some I love, of course, and some I love less. But it's a hapless job. And I was speaking, I'm frequently thesis advising students and mentoring people from all different stripes in the art market. And I just implored this one woman, and she's wildly kind of idealistic and almost socialistic in her approach. But if she doesn't buy five great paintings from her artists or five great manageable pieces, it's not because she doesn't want to make millions of dollars and she doesn't want to be, she's not inherently materialistic, but as a kind of insurance policy or an annuity to someone who's going to get older, grow tired, or lose the bug to be able to fight the battle, you need something to fall back on. And the only way anyone who has a gallery, no matter what size it is, the only way to ever benefit financially, if that's your to intent, is that's the only way to do so, it, period. How, There's just no other way. Right. You make money selling art to pay your bills, and you make something more than money, which is the creation of wealth by keeping art. So, and I believe in art, and that's the only way a gallery could make money. Period. I totally tend to agree with that. I mean, I, I, I criticize the galleries routinely because so much of the perception and I, there, there's a lot of issues, but I do love the gallery model. And I guess, you know, taking off on that idea, um, do you have any advice or thoughts for like if, if a number of artists wanted to start their own space or kind of um, step outside of the kind of existing commercial system of representation, um, how might they go about getting the capital to say buy each other's art to buy, you know, mm -hmm. like to do it? Well, I mean, I, I, I was speaking, I was speaking to this dealer just the other day and trying to, I was, I had to like push her. I wanted to help her. And then like, I was speaking to one of her young artists. He's a very young and talented painter. And the artist was like, I appreciate her work so much at this stage of my career. I would give her something or, I mean, you know, so you can certainly, you're not going to get bigger. You can't force one of her theories was like to try to get the bigger galleries to compensate the smaller galleries when an artist is poached or an artist. You can't tell in a laissez-faire capitalistic environment, you can't just say to someone, to David Werner, the right thing for you to do is to give this gallery 50 grand because you swipe this artist. Or, I mean, people just don't, it's not the way the world functions. But you can certainly implore your artists or ask your artists to help subsidize something when you're devoting and sacrificing so much to promote 
an artist that has no collective uh, community constituency, it's certainly not asking too much to try to get an artist to at least, if not give you, I mean, I'm not asking artists to be in the position of having to give something away for free, but they, they're, you know, dealers typically get 50% uh, commission. So it's certainly a good place to start. And if you're working with younger artists, how do you get, I mean, the best thing for people to do, like with the Lower East Side group of people banding together and trying to create a solution or at least try to improve upon things, there are, the Journal Gallery just did a new initiative where they have shows for a week or whatever it is at really, really low price points, like one in $5,000, say, which in contemporary art, I mean, the way we met, Patty, is when you criticized some of my writing for being casually privileged. And I mean, that really touched me because it's entirely true. I mean, art is not a utilitarian object and by nature, to be involved in the market, you need disposable income beyond what you need to eat and shelter yourself although some of the best collectors have spent money they didn't have and jeopardized their entire lives because they get so obsessive compulsive about it. But I mean, with the internet, there are internet only galleries on, we had no opportunities like this when I started, but there's more ways to do it yourself today than ever before. It's certainly not easier in any respect as a result of it, but there are easier ways to, 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 to disseminate information about what you're doing today cheaply and inexpensively than ever before via the internet. So, I mean, for people can do their apartment shows. There are so many different, there are shows in trucks and there are show. there's so many millions of different ways to do it. And I just think that, you know, the whole gallery model has only been like a French 19th century model of selling art and in this way and means in which it's done. It's been really, it's been a very short history of the commercial art gallery and the transformation it's taken and the mutations that it's going to take. So I think that, I mean, it's never been a totally fixed model, but we're certainly going to see the most radical changes in the next five years that I can't even think about of what is going to happen. Yeah, and but it's I, going to. I, I do think that that change is happening. I guess part of my question is you need capital to buy art. And I'm just wondering if there's any investment schemes that you could imagine, and you don't have to answer this right now, but thinking about if there was a, a collective group of artists, how do they, how can they get some capital to buy artwork and hang on to it and maybe give a, a return on investment six years down the line or five years? You know, I mean, they've tried, they've tried things like that mutual, mutual, whatever it's called, the kind of there's the artist pension fund. trust and that, yeah, I'm not talking. Corrupt, cor corrupt, stupid, hideous yep. models. It's not totally non-functioning. I mean, I just think people can get together and trade. There's no scheme that immediately comes to mind, but there's nothing can really, you know, if people have their own constituency and they're like-minded and they can get together and find some way to trade amongst themselves and to, you know, there's so many different unconventional ways for people to do stuff today. Yeah, and, I mean, what we're looking for is some like ethically and morally good market manipulation by artists <laughs> on, the, <laughs> yes. on the, 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 the front end of it before that happens. I mean, I don't, even, I, I don't, you know, in the long run, I really, you can't even, I mean, there was a whole zombie formalism thing. And that's the closest I've seen in my entire life to a kind of giant manipulation, a game of greed and bad behavior. But it was a beautiful little tragedy playing out and the people that got lost money from it did so because of their own hubris. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that was a situation where, you know, like you have an artist like Lucian Smith squirting out three or 400 paintings out of a fire extinguisher. It's just like Kusama and her late net paintings dated 2019. That was something that really was unlike anything I had seen before, an entirely speculative driven bubble that blew up and burst between like let's say 2011 and 2014. Oh yeah, yeah, it, it got its own name. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, yeah. do you think that there are things that artists can do to like protect their own markets? Because it does seem like. Yeah, uh, I have a I have a hypothetical. What what yeah. if? I mean, I just think I just think the artist the artist should not be in a position where it, it's a sad case where the artist has to know the flipping propensities of their collecting base. Really, it's the dealer. The dealers have lost. I mean, I remember like I remember Roberta Smith made me cry like the first time she. I tried to speak to her when she came into a show I did in 1990 and she snapped something back to me, which like a tear rolled down my cheek. I was so, but there's been like such a, a shift in the power base, even in the last, like, let's say 25 years. And the collectors or the money people have usurped all the power from everybody, from the artists, from the gallerists, from the critics, from the museums, the whole advent of private museums and how these like kind of curatorial museum without a based on scholarship. There's been so many different changes afoot and the only the dealers really have no power other than to decide who to sell it to and for a young artist who's becoming developing a demand because if an artist doesn't have buyers it does, there's no there's nothing happening but once an artist begins to get buyers it's the responsibility of the dealer to make sure it goes into people that aren't unscrupulous well, because the people that behave badly yeah. have done it no one does it once yeah. no one does a bad deal or a flip once they're doing it because it's a pattern of how they function and they it's well, the dealer's is, responsibility. Is flipping the only form of market manipulation? I guess is one thing I'd ask. It's like, you know, I've heard of artists making a body of work, having it shown at a gallery. The, the dealer pretends all the work is sold, holds it right. for a year, and then says to uh, his collectors a year later, oh, I have this amazing painting that just came back to me, but, oh, you know, it's twice the price. That could only work if there's a demand. That can't you can't manufacture interest. I'm, look, there's I've heard of situations where let's say you're my client and we're sitting at an auction, and I'm advising you to buy this painting, and we're sitting together at auction house A, and then someone bids. Let's say someone bids, and then I bid, then someone else bids, and I'm encouraging you to go higher, and I'm getting paid 10% off the purchase price, but the bidder, unbeknownst to you could be a friend of mine. I've heard of situations where oh, yeah. things like that yeah. have happened or people own 20 pieces and they're bidding up one piece to an artificial level and then they dump all the other 20 pieces. But again, like there's been such a level of cautiousness that's enveloped the entire market today that I just, I don't even think you can, the only art that you can flip today is someone like Mark Bradford or Kusam or Jonas Wood or, yes. you know, and what's so, her, Laura the, the, Owens or, Right, but this, you know, this is important, I think, because, you know, for maybe, maybe people in our audience don't necessarily understand that, like, the retail prices of contemporary art are basically zero until it's proven at auction. And I no, I don't. I don't know. I mean, until a group of people buy the work, yeah, then exactly. you set the market. You, yeah, the, the auction. It doesn't the necessarily to have to go to auction because sometimes, in, like Mary Weatherford's first piece at auction later in life, went for two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. She had never had a piece in auction. True. Um, you know, the, the value is confirmed there. I guess part of my question yeah. is that, you know, there's we talked about there's so much art being produced and a lot of people bought a lot of artwork in the 2000s. And the question is, is there going to be any kind of correction, I suppose, if a lot of this work starts coming up at auction, whether it's death, divorce? or it, it was, No, you know, I mean, like... there's no bubble in the art market at all. And I believe there's, there's, there's always going to be pockets. I mean, we're talking about an assessment historically and financially in real time. And art, that doesn't happen in art. Art needs time. It needs time to accrue its meaning and its value. And I mean, there's no instantaneous historical a priori judgment about whether something's good or bad. So I think that things are constantly changing. There are 
artists that get hyper intense speculation at early points of like look you could look at an artist like Mark Rochon he's 49 years old and his auction record is 16 million dollars so can you explain that to me Uh, you know, I totally understand the Mark Grotons. I mean, that's like the superstar status. I guess I'm, I'm, you know, my concern and my sympathies lie with the many thousands of artists who've sold artwork at the many fairs to collectors who probably don't even know how an auction works. And I don't know what the fate of all this artwork is. I mean, like the storage industry is consolidating and booming. I mean, I, you know, there's a, probably a future well, look, museum I mean, model anyone who just collects, looking at people who, storage. Like people who I would call like professional, the people that get the bug to avidly collect they're constantly buying and squirreling things away. It's the nature of hoarding, and that's very much a part of collectorship. So anyone who's like madly collecting has lots of storage space. And, and also, like I have to say, like back to art dealers, I love art dealers as collectors because I feel morally incapable of selling a piece of art to someone because I feel like obligated throughout the relationship to come, like over time, will they maintain their same relationship with this object Will they change how they feel about it? Will they want to go in? Will they want to change it? Or Most of them were artists before. They love art, and they just understand art in such a quick and pleasant way that for me, it's the ideal person to deal with because when you sell something to a dealer, it's not capricious. There's not going to be any change of heart within as soon as the wind changes direction. So it's just a matter of degree. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I do appreciate it when dealers buy artwork. I you know it's just one of my concerns is that most of the dealers I've worked with and the dealers I know in the mid list and the mid tier don't have the capital to buy of their course, artist absolutely. work when it comes back up at yeah. sales. And that that seems no. to be if that work starts coming onto the market or people try to sell it, they may not find that the work has held its value. I mean, I, I know another artist who has been working. Um, with someone else's collection and it was recently sort of assessed. And she said that most of the work uh, was assessed at half its value. And for and that was true for most of the work that was bought for under $100,000. And I just thought it was <laughs> fascinating that like, literally it was half its value, basically. <laughs> you know, almost his entire collection. Oh my God. Right. That's, yeah. that's, that's depressing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks for that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> like when, when you, back to what you said when you, said that I deal in a casually privileged universe. It's entirely the case. And, but like, it's funny because I, obviously I'm very materialistic to be doing what I'm doing. It's a buying and a selling situation. But at the same time, I've never even looked at, I don't know how much art, I, I don't like count my nuts like a squirrel. I just don't know and I don't care. It's not really the driving for, I get more satisfaction from writing and teaching than I do from selling another single painting, even though that takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. But for all of these people you're describing, there's no solution. There's just absolutely nothing I can say other than, you know, when you feel compelled. When, but I don't mean Kenny, it. Kenny, so we had you on the show so you could be this beacon of light and oh, show us the way. No. But what I'm saying is when you're compelled to do something, nothing can stop you. So I don't care what the economic climate is. I don't care what the recession is. I don't care how grim and bleak that it looks. Someone's going to start another gallery tomorrow. Someone's going to make another piece of art tomorrow and someone's going to try to sell it and someone's going to try to buy it. So I just think like art is a decision that chooses you more than you choosing art. And I just think that, yeah, you know, for curse. better or worse, there are great things about my life and my business. And there are painful things that are hurtful personally in my relationships commercially with people, because really, if you're dealing in an art trade, the word friend is a misnomer because it's a mercenary business <laughs> and art is really the only thing that I care about. So it's 
90% of 95% of my entire relationships fall within the kind of rubric of art. And it, it never amazes me how painful it is on a regular yeah. basis, but I still wake up idealistic and happy to be doing what I'm doing and feeling lucky. I know. And I mean, I guess that's probably why the news about Knight Landesman, you know, um, sexually harassing female employees and resigning from art form comes out because we do hold, you know, a lot of us love art. We love gallery models. We love this unconditionally, even though it's problematic. And then we have these kind of uh, situations come out where the art world is much more Trump or conservative or dysfunctional than we 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 want to admit and I think that that's part of like the pain of, of well I, I mean it's a great point I, it's a great point I was just literally like some kid just came by who wants to start collecting just a matter of like two hours ago and um and I was thinking about all these different things with what you say with with you know how Trumpian is our world and so forth but um I just think it's true at the upper reaches of, of any business that you're going into. I mean, when I heard about Knight Landisman, and I felt like yeah. I was kind of behind the times because I'd actually never heard from any other women that this was yeah, a thing. Yeah, I had never heard course, that either. I just I'm thought kind it was of a, a little out, in a weird Yeah, suit. I'm a little outside <clears throat> of those circles, but at first I Oh, yeah, well, oh, sorry. One, one, quick, one, quick, one quick thing. Like, as I was, I like I said, I went to fashion business. I was in law school, and I mean... You, if you come from outside of the art world, you have this notion of some like crazed artists like cutting their ear off or getting drinking absinthe and getting wasted all the time. But I remember when I first got into the art world in the late 80s and early 90s, the biggest shock to me was the degree of conservatism within the confines of artist communities. And I mean, I just found art to be among the most absolutely backward thinking and conservative environments I had ever been in, you know, worse than law even. Because I just think the stakes were so small back then, you know, that it just caused a greater degree of kind of infighting and bad behavior. Hmm. But now I guess all the bad things are happening because of all the money that's now gravitated into the field. Well, and whenever there's a lot of money swirling around, you're going to get all kinds of pigs and hideous behavior. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I can blame the, the knight's behavior on money. I think probably the, the just the asymmetrical power relationship. But you're right. I mean, if we, but if we I, look also, at the art world, it's, world not a, it's not a great representation of society. You know, it's got a lot of... But it is. Yeah, at the same never... time, it, it, the art world makes me cry, and it touches me so personally. And so there's so many great things that happen in the art world, in the art market, and in my relationships with people, and in my teaching experiences with people, communicating. I'm very uh, transparent and accessible to people on all different levels. And I mean, sure, there are some hideous behaviors and depressing activities. At the same time, I see the most extraordinary things unfold all the time. Just interpersonal relationships, people being moved by art, it's impacting people's lives, and they're using it now. There's a hospital around the corner from me which is accredited as a museum, and they've done clinical studies that living with art extends your life, and they have less medicals, less meds, and shorter hospital stays for patients that are in public spaces with art um, commission for the spaces. So, I mean, sure, there are always going to be bad things, but that kind of, you know, as a writer, I always need stories, so I'm perversely amused by the terrible things that happen to me, but I, I honestly think great things continue to happen all the time. 
I have to say, you're much more of an optimist than I am. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I, I we're, mean, we're, we're hanging out at the lower rungs of the art world, Kenny, and it's pretty. Yeah, but I got here. thirty. I'm, I bet I'm older than all of you together. I've got thirty hard years of labor, and I'll continue to. And I had a lot of difficult times and good times, and yeah, I have just to, you know. I have to confess, I've reviewed a, a show at your space. Uh, it was Kenny Schachter Rove. I think the show is called Indigestible Correctness Part One. And uh, there was a companion uh, exhibition over at Participant Inc. And I, I raved right. about their show. And then your show, I was like, this is what happens when a dealer hangs a show. Everything was spaced perfectly. <laughs> it was very formally hung. Um, but <laughs> that's, that's my I probably had nothing to do with it. Because, I probably had nothing to do with it because I, I've never hung a painting straight in my entire life. So. <laughs> <laughs> but look, you know, I'm very critical in my writing. I mean, the truth is, is way more painful and dangerous to people. Even today, people still miraculously read so much. But, um, you know, the art world is like the mafia. No, there's an unwritten rule not to speak about the parameters or how transactions work and what's going on at the echelons of more expensive deal making. Yeah. So yeah. I feel well, like that's... it's, a res I feel compelled. It's my responsibility to be as frank about it as I can because. I, I have access to the information and I'm, it doesn't bother me to go on a limb and, and communicate it. Yeah, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that, though, in the art world. I mean, uh, people are going to call out other people's behaviors, whether it's the content of the artwork, how people kind of abuse their positions. And, you know, I think people want do want to know how this kind of crazy archaic system works and they want transparency in it but you're right i mean it is more it feels more like a mafia than you know a, a well i do think one of the place sorry I, I do think one of the unique things that we've all been talking about is uh, about the art world is how you know how much people many people in the profession profession really care about what they do and i think that caring I think that caring separates the, the art world from the like sort of Trumpian nature that we we talked about, but but I do think that also that caring gets exploited a lot. Oh yeah, people work for free. They you know there's yeah. a lot of desperation and yeah. creates a lot of these. Kind but of also like I yeah. mean, if you take someone like take Larry Gagosian, no one gets to be Larry Gagosian without being ridiculously passionate and knowledgeable and about art and ruthless you can't just yes. yeah but you know what yeah of course sure sure people are ruthless and i'm sure he's way more aggressive than the deal making front and i would it's not my interest to want to kill a deal and kill someone every day it's not how i function but when he made a partnership with leo castelli and opened the gallery in called 65 thompson street in the 90s that was one of the most people were just absolutely in in shock that this upstart was able to forge a relationship with Leo Castelli of all people, like the grand poobah of the history of was art that dealing. kind of a succession? So I mean, I mean, why would Castelli work with him? I mean, you know, he wanted some new. I mean, look, right. Larry showed Basquiat in 1983. Don't forget, and he did. I mean, he did a Brancusi show before they were being knocked off in like 2014. He did some absolutely mind-boggling exhibitions that museums didn't have the flexibility, the dexterity, or the funds to to put together. So you don't, I don't, I don't think anyone has become rich in the fine art world with that as their only pretense. I just don't think it's possible without being an art fanatic or knowing about art history. You can't just come into the art game wanting to be rich. I mean, I'm sure some artists had visions and, you know, of in the recent past that you can actually start selling art for hundreds of thousands of dollars when you're in your 20s or early 30s. That's a, you know, I don't know what to say about that. 
Uh, I mean, Larry... I just think that, you know, a lot of these people that... Hmm? Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, but Larry also organized the Damien Hurst dot retrospective, which was basically a fire sale in, like, disguise no, of... No, 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 it wasn't. That was, like, 300 paintings out of 1,200, and most of them weren't even for sale. It was a hell of a I branding mean, was, activity. I mean, that, I, I know yeah, a couple of people of, that flew that was a around the world of, to see them all. That was a hell of a lot of branding activity. Yeah. But um, I mean, that's a different story. I'm just saying that I don't think that anyone could say, like, I want to I make $100 million really fast and unscrupulously, so I'm going to open an art gallery. I, just you a, just can't do this is This is or, a side question since you're, you've taught, you know, you teach in uh, maybe an art market program or art and economics. But did you ever yeah. read that guy? Is it Magnus Wretch? I don't even know how to say his last name. I did. I reviewed it for the art newspaper. Uh, I mean, he's a guy who never had a serious art. Yeah. No one who's never had a serious gallery or succeeded on that front should first of all he contradicted himself a hundred times he had some very interesting points but then he would like he would use like metro pictures or he would use various people for case studies (laughs) and all of the case studies contradicted the entire premise of the hundred pages you just previously read so the book made absolutely no sense he did say one brilliant thing which i never really focused on and this goes right to the crux of what we're saying here because he said that all of these people are like either coming from rich families trust funds or they're delusional for people to come into the market yeah. and think that you know that 90% of these businesses lose money. Oh, yeah. And the problem is that even the best intention dealer, like I met this young dealer in Cologne and she had sold out her booth in the Cologne art fair and lost money. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's but she was doing it for advertising. Yeah. She was getting exposure yeah. and she was getting that's advertising awesome. and I tried to help as much as I could. And so there was some quid pro quo, but like, you know, yeah. It's not an easy situation. Let's put it that way. Yeah, but I would not again, like this book. Yeah, um, I, I the have, book is not a great no. book. I have no. I have one other question. I mean, because you know we're we're getting to the point where a lot of dealers are hitting retirement age or they're you know getting too old. What are going to happen to uh, these sort of like galleries that are run ostensibly by individuals? You know, whether uh, you know, are we going to see them? Well, I mean, you have Mary, you else? have Mary Goodman hovering mm-hmm. into well into her eighties and. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Gladstone mm-hmm. and what's going to how, how all the vultures are have been circling around for years waiting for like the dealers to kick off or to coach the artist so <laughs> <laughs> yes uh... so really you know those people will fall off and then there'll be every you know right now we have generations Werner and Hauser that are these big powerhouses mm-hmm. but you know there are still other people like Thomas Dane that are doing really well and I mentioned Carol Green and Green Napoli and Gavin and you know, various other people that are smaller and... I, th- I think I remember yeah. reading at one point that Gavin said something in a, a published article that he wished he could just like shoot Gagosian in the head and throw him in the East River because there's no, he can't move up until he's out of the picture, basically. And that, that's mm-hmm. where I, re- I remember reading that and thinking, yeah, the art world is a lot like the mafia. You know, you got to knock somebody mm-hmm. off to move up. Huh. Yeah, but I, I mean, I just, I think it's a lot worse than other, I mean, I just don't think it's any better or worse than anything else, not to be cynical about it, but I don't think, you know, today to be a young artist and to get picked up by Larry G is not necessarily a good thing for your market. I would, I mean, his imprimatur as he just doesn't have what he used to have to add 20% to an up to a, to, you know, an emerging or a just getting successful contemporary artist. What do you think about Joe Bradley going to Gagosian? Smart? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, I gave him his first show, which I largely still own because I couldn't sell a damn piece. It's a difficult question because uh, I just what what I find reprehensible between me and you and whoever's listening, I guess. Uh, I think they raised the primary 
prices aggressively to the point that it turned me off so much because I mean it's so funny now because like the the under the 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 kind of prejudice against group of artists now or the ones that are disproportionately suffering in relationship to their peers are like all the white guys from the 80s it was so funny because like during the neo expressionism days or you know all of these fishels and schnabel and george kondo and blechner and david sally and all of these artists have been radically left behind in the market in relationship to generations of artists since them and it's funny now to think of like someone like Eric Fischel as being the downtrodden, subjugated underdog. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what, is, what does Fischel go for at auction right now? hundred I mean, but here's the thing. So like, no, what I'm saying is the primary prices for David Sally is like 275. Eric mm -hmm. Fischel's primaries just went from like 550 to 750. George Kondo just went from like, you know, 5, 600 to 750, 800. And, you know, Ross Blechner is a very inexpensive and he's a very fabulous painter of historical significance. You know, so, and Peter Halley is now just getting up to, like, his auction record is like 400,000. And you said and, that Schnabel, you said Schnabel was a good deal now, even though you don't like his paintings? I mean, I'm not crazy about his paintings or the man behind them, per se, but... <laughs> you know, at a couple of hundred grand, and if it's a nice one, because the quality could swing so wildly, but it just makes economics. So anyway, which I think Joe's a very talented person. I don't think he's, he's certainly not a materialistic person. He's certainly not someone who wants a fancy car and a fancy house and just is in it for the money. But, you know, he is volitionally responsible. He's, he's a partnership with his dealer. And mm -hmm. for him to go and knock out primary prices of 750 to 850 when he did move to Larry, I just, right. I don't know. I love Joe and I like the work, but I just, it makes me nervous because I just think, you know, things have to be slow. So, and I just yes, see, yeah. So, yeah I would I just, agree with you. I mean, if there is any aspect to like bubbles in the art world, it's kind of clear when you look at those historical relationships of an artist like Joe Bradley outpacing the prices of his kind of, you know, predecessors of the previous generations. Mm -hmm. That's where you can kind of say like, well, maybe this is overvalued in the kind of moment will it sort of be corrected over But time? then again, like, you know, the market is very unforgiving. So mm -hmm. the market could affirm value where it doesn't exist, but it could just as quickly and swiftly remove it. And it often does, you know, yeah. retroactively, retrospectively, whatever. You know, there's constantly revision going on yeah, economically. Go because... for, do, do you see any bargains out there among the uh, zombie <laughs> formalists that might rebound in 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I can, so I can retire. It's not so funny because, I, I mean, I you know, that's a great question, actually. I just had a great conversation with uh, what David Lewis is a rep. He represents Israel Lund. Yeah. Israel yeah. Lund's prices. So this was a fascinating conversation because I was looking at these Israel Lund paintings in Fiac in Paris, and he was eyeing me, and he's like, "What's your name?" And I'm like, "Kenny." And I'm like, "What's your name?" And he's like, "David." So we get to the bottom of who each other is, and he's like, "You know, I came into this field just out of a PhD," and he said I was like thrown into the cesspool, the sewer of of like Dante's Inferno of hideous behavior and greed and this primal <laughs> muck. And I mean, this was someone who's coming from academia and he's dealing with this. So Israel Lund's paintings went to like 150,000 a painting and that painting today would be like, you know, 10, 10 to $15,000 on the secondary market. So, so, so if there's any- Will these, I mean, oh, if you wow. could buy something you love that you think is good art for like, you know, under for, 10 to 25,000 of these artists. I don't, I think that there was so much overexposure over, yeah. you know, but it had, I mean, that how, work will take time to come much, back I if mean, it ever does. Well, here's, here's a good question too about this because it, like David Lewis is in the Lower East Side. I have no idea how, like how he's doing financially, but like, let's say that gallery goes out of business 
and this artist's prices are already kind of bargain basement. Does like how much of that is a problem for the artist? Like, but does I, that like? I mean, I, I saw it when I met. I mean, David had these paintings. The new paintings by Israel Lund were forty-five thousand at the fair, mm-hmm. oh, and wow. I, I don't get. I I think that he's doing. I mean, the bigger paintings of the they would have been like you know two to three hundred thousand in two thousand and twelve, but I don't sense that he's going out of business, and he seems resolute about how he does business and. He has a very distinct way of expressing himself, and I, I don't see that he's inordinately suffering or under the oh, gun. No, no, no. I don't this, know his finances. A, I only just met him. This is the that, that was a bad example. It wasn't specifically David Lewis. All I'm asking is, like, let's say there's, uh, like, an artist's work has been devalued, and then the gallery yeah. that is representing that artist. Is there any way back from price point hell? Yeah, I mean, look. There's artists like there's artists like like Christian Rosa, like uh, Lucy and Smith, and um, you know, there's there's a David Ostrowski and Mark Flood even got caught up in it, and there's many many artists. But I mean, the artists coming making art for the right reasons will soldier on and do what they have to do, and I mean, will continue to sell their work at whatever prices. And ma- anyone who went up that high that fast, you know, there was a problem because think art from a 25-year-old artist shouldn't be $400,000. It's right. it's just not right. There's, there's no conceivable instance where that makes sense. Yeah, there's, there's it's, just, it's, an, it's, it's like it's, champagne. It's so irrational. It's so inherently irrational to think that an unproven historically artist who's artist who's like, well, you know, it's, I mean, the only thing historic is the, is the prices of these artists, right. you know, without the content of the work being even seriously considered. So that was an anomaly. And it was inherently flawed, and it was never go. It's you know, some of the artists were completely innocent, getting caught up in this whole situation. And other artists had something to fuel to help to fuel it, well, by cranking out the work excessively. I wish uh, I wish if there was a, a listener on the podcast who wanted to go in with me on a uh, uh, maybe. <laughs> bargain basement price for like an Israel Lund uh, get in touch you know <laughs> I, I might only well, be looking at like five to ten percent but uh, I'll invest what I okay can. so how about you get your listeners to buy it and then I'll sell you some of the works out of my storage then all right <laughs> <laughs> and there you go explain then everybody's me happy. Uh, buyers club <laughs> <laughs> all right look well, I mean some of yeah, whatever. <laughs> People will come up with these kinds of far-fetched clubs, and maybe these things could be the next thing. I, I'm not. I'm not past it. Uh, I'm desperate. So. Well, Kenny, thanks so much for talking to us. We we got to wrap things well, up yeah. here. Um, but the podcast will go live on uh, Monday. And uh, okay, we'll thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, okay. thanks so much for coming yeah, on the show.